Welcome to California Groundbreakers, a place that sets trends, starts movements, and shakes up how things are done around the world. We're inviting interesting people doing innovative things to sit down and talk with us about how they're asking and answering the big questions facing all Californians. Our goal is to inspire change across the state, one conversation at a time. You filled out your ballot and cast your votes. Good job. Now, what are you going to get in return? How are the results of election 2018 going to affect you as a resident, a voter, and a taxpayer in California? We're down in the basement at Roostallers in downtown Sacramento for our last policy in a pint talk about election 2018 and taking a look at what happens now. Join us as we talk with a group of political experts about the results of congressional races, top state offices, ballot initiatives, voter turnout, and what's next for California in 2019, with a new governor, a new state legislature, and a new session of Congress taking their places in January. So hi everyone, welcome to California Groundbreakers. It's a civic engagement organization here in Sacramento, focusing on innovators doing groundbreaking things around the state of California. My name is Vanessa Richardson. I'm the executive director. And I'm here with three great panelists. We're going to be talking about uh, the post-election 2018, kind of like a post-mortem. I don't know if that's the right term, but we're going to be looking at... For me, it is. For you, <laughs> as we'll discuss. But basically, it's a, we voted now what? What's going to happen um, here in the state on a local level, statewide, and obviously uh, in D.C. There's a lot of connections between California and Washington, D.C. And uh, I thought it was interesting, actually. I keep hearing about historic turnout for a midterm election, but when I was listening on NPR this morning, uh, they said that it was indeed pretty historic, I guess, nationwide, more than 40% excuse me, 47% of the voting eligible population cast a ballot, and that is a 50-year high for midterm elections. I guess 68, 69 was the last time it hit that number. So it sounds pretty historic. So basically, tonight we're gonna talk about what happens next. How are we as Californians going to be affected by what happens on the federal level? Obviously, we have a Californian who might be Speaker of the House uh, yet again, now that the House is in uh, Democratic control, uh, how about on the state level with a new governor taking over in January? And then just basically going forward, how are all these votes that we cast um, serve as a signal or a red flag or a beacon for California's future based on how we voted on housing, the homeless, water, taxes, marijuana grows? So we have three great panelists here who really obviously get down into the weeds on a regular basis when it comes to elections and campaigns and voter demographics. And they're going to tell us how they see what happened in election 2018, from running the campaigns to casting the ballots, just predicting, hopefully, a little prediction about what all this means as we go into a new year, and then obviously another election year coming up after that in 2020. So before we start, I want to give some special thanks to people who helped put this event together. We're holding this event at Roostaller Beer in downtown Sacramento. I want to give a special thanks to J.E. Pena, who's the owner. This is actually his idea. <laughs> yeah, he's, I guess he's on his way. He's, uh, he just finished a walnut harvesting class in UC Davis, but this was his idea. I was honestly kind of burnt out after doing so many policy and pints on all the propositions and reading the propositions. I was ready to just vote and be done. Uh, you, and you did, the panelists didn't do that. I did, and I was done. But J.E. said, um, you know, what happens after we vote? I kind of want to know, like, 
what when we cast our vote for this or that bond or this state race, what does it mean? So thank you, J.E., for actually I am really interested and I, I am curious to see what they say. So J.E. Pano, special thanks. Also to Zoe Pineda, his right-hand person, who's the manager of Roostaller Beer, for helping put these events together. Many thanks, Zoe. Also, um, I want to give a special thanks to Stephen Maviglio. Uh, he's kind of an informal board advisor for California Groundbreakers. He helped put together this panel, uh, uh, suggested some panelists, so I wanted to say thanks to him. Of course, I want to say thanks to the panelists. I'm sure you're kind of tired after a long election campaign, so thank you very much for taking the time. And of course, to you, the audience, for coming out here on a Thursday night, on a windy night, for listening. Um, I appreciate everyone being here. So just quickly for the podcast, it's going to be an hour-long discussion, more or less, uh, 30 minutes of moderated Q&A, followed by 30 minutes of fantastic audience Q&As. So, I never, I never really introduced the panelists. I like them to introduce themselves. And I have asked them to, besides giving their name and their current role in organization, I asked a personal uh, note. I'm gonna flip it on you guys just a little bit. I did ask them to, about a specific question about the election, but I wanna change it and make it a little more, I don't know, insightful for me, but, um, Starting with the woman on my left, I wanted to ask, obviously, your name, your role in organization, what you do. And the personal personal note that I'd like to know about you is, um, what, was, what got you into politics? What got you into doing what you're doing now? Was there a certain moment, a certain event that you participated in, some action that made you think, I want to do this? And that led you to where you are today. So I hope that doesn't freak you out too much about answering that question. But what got you into politics and to what you're doing now? So let's start with the woman on my left. Okay. Well, hopefully you can all hear me all right. Um, I'm Kim Alexander. I'm president and founder of the California Voter Foundation. We're online at calvoter.org. I hope you will come and visit our beautiful new website, which was redesigned recently after a very long time. We've been on the internet since 1996, uh, and we published our first voter guide in 1994, pre-World Wide Web. So I've been part of uh, the transformation of technology in democracy for half my life right now. Um, I came to Sacramento uh, as a Senate fellow a long, long time ago and worked in the Capitol. Um, but before that, my dad was on the city council in Culver City where I grew up in Southern California. And he um, was a very dedicated public servant and I watched him get elected after walking the precinct door to door and meeting his constituents to be and neighbors. And he, it was just basic old fashioned hard work that got him elected. And um, when I was, uh, I guess, about um, a teenager in, in high school, um, I remember someone came to our house and offered my dad a big campaign donation. And he turned, turned them away. And I said, what are you doing? Are you crazy? That guy wants to give you money for your campaign. And my dad was like, I don't know him. And uh, I don't like what he stands for. And I don't want him to think that I owe him something. And that was my first understanding of how money in politics works. And then later I realized that my dad 
was never going to run for higher office because he was uh, couldn't couldn't raise the money that it would take for somebody like him to get elected. And it made me really sad to think that people who want to be public servants are not participating in the electoral process. So I've been interested in electoral reform really all my life. And that's what led me to start the California Voter Foundation, something I thought I would do for an election cycle or two. And now it's been uh, 24 years and it's been an amazing experience. Well, um, right, no, no, nothing, uh, not, not even close. Um, my name is Tim Rosales. Um, uh, I am uh, partner at the uh, Wayne Johnson Agency. We're a, a, a public affairs political consulting firm based here in Sacramento. Um, I have uh, done work and, and run campaigns uh, all across the country, probably 70% of them in California, um, but in states like Massachusetts, New Jersey, um, you know, Oregon, Washington. Uh, I, I uh, just recently uh, was the campaign manager for John Cox for governor, uh, ran that campaign, um, done a lot of, it's the first uh, candidate campaign I've done in a while. Um, I do a lot of statewide initiative and local initiative campaigns and ballot measure campaigns, do a lot of public affairs work. Um, I am uh, uh, on the board of the American Association of Political Consultants. Yes, there is such a thing. Um, and uh, uh, so that's great. It's a great bipartisan organization, so we're very proud to be a part of that. Um, to answer your question, what got me involved, my family was not political uh, at all. Uh, I grew up in Los Angeles. Uh, uh, my dad was a public school teacher, uh, school principal in uh, East Los Angeles uh, for 40 years. Um, you know, a Democrat, but not really political uh, in any stretch of the imagination. My mom... Um, was not political either. Uh, I remember she uh, voted for uh, Walter Mondale in 1984 because he was from Minnesota and she was from North Dakota, and that was her whole rationale. Uh, it's a good rationale, I think. You know, uh, but uh, well, I didn't talk to her for a week because of it, because I was a Reagan guy. But uh, you know, the well, but that's what got me into into politics and interested uh, was uh, for whatever reason I was captivated by. Uh, this uh, this guy I saw on TV uh, who when I was you know just starting to watch television and instead of watching cartoons and that type of thing I was tuning into the evening news and I was watching uh, uh, you know uh, political items and I was watching Ronald Reagan deliver speeches and I was just captivated by that and that's really what got me into um, an interested in politics uh, and then uh, you know really uh, you know after after college um, like a lot of us we just start plugging ourselves in somewhere, and you get more responsibility and more responsibility, and you just pretty much say yes to everything that anybody asks you to do. And suddenly, you somebody gives you a paycheck and says, "Hey, you know what? You can do. You can make a little money doing this." Uh, so that's how I got involved. My name is Brian Brokaw. Um, my story, believe it or not, is remarkably similar to what Tim just shared. Um, I, too, in 1984, supported Ronald Reagan, uh, according to my mom. I don't remember this, but I was three years old, and I told her, apparently on the way to school, that I was voting for Ronald Reagan. Um, I come from a Democratic family. Um, our stories are different in that I come from a political family. My uh, dad worked in the legislature for many years. So I grew up around politics. Um, didn't think I would do it professionally, uh, but similar to Tim's story, I... Um, uh, needed something to do when I graduated. I was a political science major 
and I went to work on a campaign, um, a presidential campaign in Iowa, where I found out it's actually very easy to get a job because they need hundreds and thousands of young people who are willing to work for, I got paid $1,500 a month, um, and you know you get to live in Waterloo, Iowa, in my case, with like 10 other people in an apartment, and um, one thing led to another, and I've now been doing this for 15 or 16 years, and as Tim said, you, you, and a lot of people will work on campaigns early on and, and then go get a real job or go to law school or, um, or do something else. Um, I enjoy it, and uh, you end up taking on bigger roles, uh, doing different things, and um, it actually can be, a, it's a pretty fun way to, um, to make a living and you actually get to work on a lot of impactful things. Um, uh, Tim and I have also worked against each other on a whole bunch of things, and we are uh, we are friends, and um, and I don't just mean that like we're actual friends. Um, and uh, I had the privilege of working on Gavin Newsom's uh, campaign for governor the last few years. Got to know Gavin Newsom on the uh, uh, two years prior when I was managing the campaign for Proposition 64, the marijuana legalization initiative. Uh, which was uh, which was victorious in spite of a valiant effort by Tim Rosales, who ran the No campaign. Um, and uh, uh, prior to that, I, I uh, worked for uh, Kamala Harris on her uh, two attorney general races and helped her on her Senate race as well. Um, I here in Sacramento, I have a small consulting firm uh, named after myself, and that's who I am. Well, thank you all for being here. It's, uh, it's going to be. I'm really interested in hearing what you have to say. Um, so I'm going to start with Kim uh, first, and then Brian and Timmy can chime in about the voter turnout. Um, you know, again, that 47% nationwide. I was curious about here in California, what was it like this year? If you, if you, for, for as much as you know, because I know there's still votes being tallied, but uh, based on at least here in Sacramento, I know we did a new process of early voting and mail-in ballots, um, and then. There's still votes coming in. Can you give a breakdown of what you saw this year in terms of demographics, number of people turning out, um, usage of new voting methods and systems, how that worked out? So just an overview of the ups and downs, the good and bad, uh, the who and what of uh, voting this year in the, mid in the midterms and the primaries in June. Yeah, well, we're, we are just two days after the election, and there's a lot of unknowns still. So in terms of, like, demographic breakdowns, I couldn't really say at this point. I did. It did feel like there were a lot of young people voting uh, in this election, a lot of first-time voters. Um, we have a new voting right in California called Conditional Voter Registration that allows people to register and vote on Election Day. And a lot of people took advantage of that in this election, um, and particularly young people. So... That's where we saw a lot of lines on election day, people waiting at county registrars of voters' offices to vote, um, to register and vote. In Sacramento, we implemented a new voting model called the Voters' Choice Act, and four other counties also implemented this new voting model. And we're, we're waiting to see what the stats show about what the turnout was for June and November. What we saw in June for the Voters' Choice Act was that the five counties that implemented this new voting model, which I should say um, changes things around by everybody is sent a vote by mail ballot automatically in the mail, whether you asked for one or not. You no longer have a local polling place where you can vote. 
but you have multiple vote centers in your county that are open over numerous days, and you can go to any one of them and vote, turn in your ballot, and you also have drop boxes where you can go and turn in your ballot. So it's a big experiment, and you know we, the jury's kind of still out to see whether it uh, was a success or not, but in June, what we saw of the five counties that implemented it was that all five counties saw their voter turnout go up from 2014, but 2014 was a record low turnout in California, so that wasn't really a great measurement. What was important to look at was how those five counties that implemented the Voter's Choice Act all have been historically above statewide turnout anyway. So the question was, was it, was it more above statewide turnout than it normally is? Was it about the same? Was it below what it's normally above? And the answer was, on average, it was about the same. So it was a wash, um, which means you know, no harm, no foul. I mean, it's a new system, and, uh, and it seems there was some, some confusion. There's always difficulty getting over you know, changes. But um, overall, you know, I think that there are a lot of benefits to this new voting process because it does give voters more options. The slogan in Sacramento was more days, more ways. You probably, hopefully you saw that or saw the hashtag. Um, so we'll see if more counties want to adopt it. It's very staff intensive and equipment intensive. The vote centers, you can do a lot more at the vote centers than you can do at a polling place. You can register, you can get a replacement ballot. Um, they can check in real time whether you voted or not. So that helps reduce provisional voting, which a lot of people do not like to do. So um, on the statewide level in this election, just before I came over here, I was able to check the Secretary of State's website for the unprocessed ballots report. I don't know if you guys saw that. Just got issued at 5.08 p.m. tonight. Everybody's been waiting for this. So we have 7.3 million votes counted in California right now. But according to the Secretary of State, we have at least 4.5 million ballots still to be adjudicated. Those are primarily vote-by-mail ballots, but they're also uh, provisional ballots. And these new conditional voter registration provisional ballots. And then there's another category, which is ballots that need to be remade because they came in, somebody poured their co spilled their coffee on their ballot, or it got torn on the way, or whatever, somebody scratched something out, it's not gonna scan properly. So there are teams of election workers that are remaking ballots so that they can be scanned and counted. So that is, you know, about by and it's hard it's kind of a moving number you can't really add those two numbers together and say okay there's 11.8 million ballots cast in california because all the counties are reporting all these things at different times so it's really guesstimating but the record turnout was somewhere over 10 point something million in 2010 and i think we're going to break a record this election i think it's kind of safe to say that much um, not all those ballots that are still out, those 4.5 million will get counted. Some of them are going to get rejected because uh, they're provisional ballots that people couldn't lawfully cast, but most of them will get counted. And um, I think we may have a record turnout, so that would be great if that happens. A question about that. For these races that are still close to, too close to call, like the superintendent of schools, uh, Marshall Tuck and Tony Thurman, how, uh, and some house races, right, that are still too close to call. How long would it take uh, for these votes? When will it be officially announced? Uh, it, I think you had mentioned, Kim, before we started, like 28 days to count all the votes, or are some of these races gonna take that long? 
Yeah, call? they may. They may. It depends how close it is and if the, the margin between the candidates gets wider or narrower. Sometimes you see the trends going, you realize you're at a point you can't come back from and somebody concedes. But, you know, Stacey Abrams just uh, said in Georgia uh, yesterday or on election night, I can't remember what she said it, but she said she is not conceding. It's really close there. Any candidate to concede when it's when it's close and there's lots of votes out would be foolish. So, you know, we really have to hold our horses and give the election officials a chance to count all the ballots that are lawfully cast and uh, let them do their jobs and make sure that people aren't disenfranchised. And I've, th- I've lived this uh, in 2010. Um, a lot of people have forgotten because it was eight years ago, but when Kamala Harris was first elected, on election night, her opponent, Steve Cooley, uh, was up like seven points at one point in the night and went out on speech and declared victory. And, uh, you know, we were called to ask for our response and we said based on what like we saw how many millions of uh, ballots were uncounted and that turned into a three almost four week um, vote count process that was personally miserable because uh, you know some days depending on where the votes came in we would go up and then it was just a roller coaster ride uh, you know very emotional Um, tonight I have been on the phone with two campaigns that are currently in the middle of this uh, process. And the questions the campaign managers were asking me was like, how did you personally deal with this? Because it's really difficult. And the thing I tell them is it's mostly out of your control. Like there's no more persuasion at this point. So this is just a matter of making sure that the votes that should be counted are actually counted and lawyers pretty much do that for you. So you just need to stay sane. There is a little bit that the campaigns can do, and I'm not sure that they all realize this, but we have a new law in California where if you signed your vote by mail ballot and your signature gets rejected, you have the ability to send in a new signature. And I'm just kind of waiting to see if the campaigns take advantage of that because they can identify their voters, right, who who are likely to vote for them. And if their ballot has been challenged, they would get involved, wouldn't they, to try to get their voters to go in and fix their signature. I can imagine a lot of lawyers are going to get involved by the end of this. You know, the, from a campaign manager standpoint, the biggest thing, and I mean, any of us who've been through election night is, you're, particularly if it's a candidate, right, is managing your candidate's emotions, right? It's up, it's down, do I concede, do I not? What's, you know, that is the biggest challenge on election night. Now stretch that out 28 days. And I think all of us could probably open a practice uh, doing, you know, uh, general counseling, uh, you know, across the street from a capital and do probably pretty good at it because the, the emotions of a candidate during that time uh, and, you know, making sure that their head is in the right place. And like Brian said, there's only so much you can do, you know, at that point, you know, and but the candidate wants to continue. They're in campaign mode. They want to continue to campaign and go out there and, you know, and, and either they're up, they're down, whatever it is. And it is a, it is a challenging endeavor to try to, um, you know, kind of manage that as well as now you've got this, this counting process, uh, that you also have to monitor and manage. And and like I said, you get lawyers from, you know, both political parties get involved. The the candidate has a turn. I mean, there, there's a big process to it and everything descends on these, you know, County registrar voters. Uh, uh, and, um, you know, just, there's a lot, a lot going on behind the scenes. Patience is a virtue in politics. Uh, so Brian, obviously, um, 
one of your candidates is Gavin Newsom, who I think he, they called that race, right? He's now the governor. So my question for you is, uh, I think we all are wondering, I'm sorry, governor-elect, governor-elect. Uh, and, and Lieutenant Governor. Well, he's the still. acting governor right now. He, actually. Is, he is the acting governor. Is he the acting the governor? governor is out of the state. Okay, okay. Um, so I guess people probably want to know what his plan of attack will be when he is uh, sworn in on January 7th. So give us, can you give us an idea of uh, what he is planning to tackle first? Second, third? Well, this is being recorded and the beer is free. So I need to be careful. Um, not that's, to that's not, why we have the beer yeah not to get ahead of anything I think uh, well first of all I mean uh, as Kim just mentioned he's the acting governor and just think about this on his first day we had this horrible mass shooting in Ventura um, and then we have these wildfires and you know this is like literally you no know, granted he's you know Jerry Brown is obviously still governor but when you're acting governor you're the one that's issuing the uh, emergency proclamations and everything so it's like there's it's a um, it started um, and that's you know that that shows you what the incoming will be you can you have your affirmative your proactive agenda that you want to tackle that you campaign on that you run on and then you have the real world as it is too so you have to figure out how to do both um, I don't want to get ahead of him and, and talk about what the he's gonna do in the first 100 days because that's for him to do, um, but I think you know, the the camp we the campaign that we ran, and I would actually say this was one of the more positive campaigns I think I've ever seen, uh, at least as the the two campaigns managed. It was actually a lot of issues for th those people that actually followed it closely and 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 paid attention and listened to the one debate that we had. Um, uh, but uh, you know, I, I think you got a good sense of of where his priorities are going to be from. Uh, you know, er early childhood education to addressing affordability, uh, housing and homelessness. Um, you know, those were a lot of the themes that he talked about on the campaign trail that were also the focus of our TV ads. And so I think, you know, people who have been following and watching TV and reading the newspapers have a good sense of where he's going. He also has talked a lot about uh, continuing the fiscal discipline of Governor Brown um, and, you know, making sure that we continue to have a healthy uh, uh, budget situation and prepare for, you know, the inevitable economic downturn. Um, I think he's trying to make sure that a lot of people who expect him to, to now, you know, write a bunch of checks to, uh, to their causes are, aren't disappointed, but you know, he needs, yeah, right. Um, but he's, you know, he's made a point of saying he's not going to be profligate and he, and he really wants to model himself after uh, governor Brown uh, with respect to fiscal responsibility. And Tim, my next question for you, you ran a John Cox's uh, campaign, uh, he lost, and <laughs> uh, there's a lot of talk about the Republican Party in California and what is its future. And so um, based on these election results, you know, what do you see, how is the state's Republican Party gonna move forward you know, based on what you know, especially with the new legislative session starting in January? What if anything, can they do to get their mojo back? Well, yeah, I, uh, I think, you know, there's been the, the Republican Party obituary written in California, I think, starting, you know, in Watergate when they were uh, probably down in uh, maybe even lower than they are, you know, today. Uh, but certainly uh, that's been the case, you know, since we had uh, 
Governor Wilson leave office and, and, and Gray Davis uh, beat Dan Lundgren uh, by 20 points when I think Republican registration was at 35% in the state. Now it's at 24%. Um, both parties have been, have been losing members, Republicans more rapidly than Democrats, but it's, it, there's, there's, a, there, there's a partisan attrition on both sides. I think both parties need to, need to take a look at and the, and the reasons why. In terms of you know, the Republican Party, I think that any party uh, is made up more, it, it has to be about more than just its brand or more than you know, just its leader. It has to be about an ideology, right? A set of values, a set of principles. Um, and I think that's something that the Republican Party is struggling with right now. What is its ideology? What are its principles? Uh, are they being set, you know, by uh, Washington D.C. and by the president, uh, or are they a different set, you know, of principles? Going back to, you know, the the, the party of Reagan, you know, the party of Lincoln, uh, and there, I think internally, and and this happens, you know, uh, this happens in both parties. But there is that there is that struggle. Um, in terms of where we are in, in, in California, I think there, there was, you know, obviously tremendous uh, Democrat uh, turnout uh, in a lot of areas. I think that that is from a, from a tactical and strategic standpoint, you know, uh, political operators who operate on the Republican side need to evaluate kind of these new, you know, uh, realities in terms of registration, in terms of, um, you know, uh, uh, voting and that type of thing. I think that, that they were a little bit, um, I don't want to say caught by surprise, but, uh, but it's just a new reality uh, that has been, uh, you know, coming to bear in California here these last, you know, few years that, you know, this year we really saw the, the product of that. Uh, and in terms of communication, in terms of being able to outreach to voters and be in being able to, you know, not only turn out your base, but then also be persuasive. So there's a lot of work that needs to be done, certainly. Um, but, you know, I, I don't think that, uh, I, you know, again, getting back to uh, the obituary has been written, you know, it seems like every cycle I see, you know, that headline from the LA Times or from the Sacramento Bee or from, you know, whomever. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, it, it will continue to sustain. The question is, is just where do you go and how do you improve? Elections are cyclical. Political, um, uh, political waves uh, are cyclical. We have ups and we have downs. Everybody does. Uh, and uh, so, you know, what is, I think, going to be critical is to see the bounce back. And, you know, that's going to be, uh, I, I think, a, a lot of soul searching in terms of ideology. And th because that's really what is the base of any, of any, of any party, any group of people. You know, it just, I just realized uh, as you were talking, is it Chad Mays? I guess he's a former assemblyman or state senator. Uh, in the assembly. He's yeah. still in the assembly. And didn't he come up with or suggest or actually create a new form of Republican Party is, you know, this it's there's California Republicans that's different than in some ways in a, uh, a traditional Republican in the U.S. Is that something that is uh, gaining momentum or uh, that the GOP is looking at? Like his his thoughts about a new kind of Republican Party, how does that, is that sticking? What do you see? Or is it just an idea? I'm just curious about that. Well, I, I don't. Is it too early? How do, I, how do I answer this? I mean, I don't, I don't think it behooves either political party to, uh, 
to try to imitate the other political party in order to gain, you know, members, right? Uh, and I think that is some of what, uh, and we've seen it, you know, in years past. Um, I do think that there, there, you know, there are um, uh, red flags that he and others have raised uh, that are important, um, but you know, I don't know that 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 is that his particular movement. Uh, and again, it's I wouldn't even call it a movement. I think it, there's a handful of political consultants that are involved in this in, in that thing. Um, but I think but it does, I think, raise some red flags, some, you know, some things that you need to just you know, consider it. But uh, in terms of where the base is out there, um, that is not where the base and the majority of Republicans, uh, you know, in California are. Brian, you wanted to add something? Yeah. I mean, the, I mean, the really difficult question for Republicans, from my vantage point, is how do you handle Trump and uh, in California? And, uh, you know, if I could point to the Cox campaign as an example, having the support. I mean, I remember the second I saw the tweet from Donald Trump uh, endorsing John Cox. And I said to myself, he just won the primary or won the second slot in the primary and lost the, the general election. And, um, you know, that base that Tim talked about, that is a very pro-Trump base. But at the same time, that is an albatross with respect to the rest of the electorate. And so they didn't have much of a choice. Um, you, I mean, you could have run the greatest campaign in the history of campaigns, and you still probably would have ended up where you are, where you ended up, just based on what the California electorate looks like right now. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And to Brian's point, I mean, it's an interesting, you know, our, our decision point in the primary was really, um, it was tough. You had a candidate, John Cox, who what, had voted for Gary Johnson, uh, and in fact, he was getting hit by the other Republican, major Republican candidate, Travis Allen, who was, you know, trying to, you know, he was he was parroting Donald Trump and everything that he did um, and, you know, was calling himself the Trump candidate. And, you know, John Cox was well, he was the guy who and Travis would say, well, you didn't vote for Donald Trump. The implication was, was that, you know, he had he had uh, voted for Hillary Clinton, which was not the case. But that was. Our biggest concern in the primary, it was not Antonio Villaraigosa. We never thought, you know, we thought, okay, you've got, you know, Gavin's got the, you know, he's got the Democratic base, the progressive base locked up. We saw, you know, John Chung and Antonio Villaraigosa kind of, you know, over here. Republicans were not going to vote for a, lot, a former Los Angeles mayor who had been Speaker of the Assembly. It just wasn't going to happen, and we didn't see it in anything that we had seen uh, at all. Our biggest worry was Travis Allen. That's who, that's what we were, that, that, that was our struggle. We knew that, and we saw all along, one or two, you know, second place, Gavin was going to come in first, second place was going to be us or Travis, and we, we really believed it was going to be, you know, then third and fourth, you know, Chung and Villaraigosa were going to kind of fight over that. We actually thought Chung was going to outpace Villaraigosa because, you know, Antonio was fishing in ponds where there just wasn't fish for him. And um, you had help from Gavin Newsom. Well, we I mean, well in here, the primary in the in the primary after after Donald Trump endorsed after Donald Trump endorsed but the fact is not is that after I mean the ab- ads absolutely. that Gavin Newsom ran were after publicizing Donald, after Donald Trump yeah. had, we had noted that he was the endorsed candidate by Donald Trump right. and which 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 you love I asked you know I, I got asked that a lot by the press in the in the uh, in, in the primary they said well does that help you I said 
well, this, those are the same ads he's going to run against us in the general election to try to beat us. Okay, so you know the fact is we're playing the we, you know we were playing the long game, uh, and that was you know that was important. But you know when I when I've been asked about what was the big thing that that really started the momentum moving for for Cox in the primary, it was early on when when Newt Gingrich actually came on and endorsed John, and that's when we started to see that movement. Uh, but still, all along, we thought Donald Trump is going to endorse Travis Allen. And then when Doug Osi kind of flirted with uh, flirted with the race, who Doug had been, I think, the first member of Congress to endorse, you know, the president, um, you know, we thought, oh, okay, you've got Osi and Allen, they're going to fight it out for the Trump vote, and we're going to have to, you know, kind of navigate these, you know, these uh, these waters here and see how we can carve through. And we and we knew that we would have a money advantage to both of them, but that was our struggle in the primary. Um, and uh, but anyway, it all turned out. So, Kim, you wanted to add something quickly? Yeah, I I think it's important for um, Californians to realize that it may not be in our benefit to be a one party state. You know, we have now and we have had democratic control of the entire executive branch of the legislature, of both houses for many years. Supermajority right now, isn't it? Yeah, now we have a supermajority. And that's not necessarily in the public's interest to have one-party rule. Um, on the one hand, you can get a lot done. But on the other hand, there may not be the accountability that you want to see among lawmakers. And I just think it's, it's an important thing to keep an eye on. You know, in this Me Too era, it's important to be mindful of the fact that the you know, abuses that we've seen in the Capitol happened in an environment where a lot of people of one party felt very comfortable and protected. And so it's important that there be some competition. Competition is good for democracy. And um, I hope that we can find a way to bring competitiveness into this process. Brian, okay, <laughs> okay. So uh, on on that note, I guess in in DC, obviously a lot of attention we pay to how uh, what was happening with the Senate and particularly the House, and it switched over to uh, Democratic control. And uh, seems like the chances are pretty good that the former Democratic Speaker of the House, uh, a Congresswoman from San Francisco, is going to be the Speaker again. Maybe, maybe not, but. Sounds like she's gunning for it, Nancy Pelosi. So for for you three, I was wondering, you know, with the Democrats with the Democrats taking over the House, and uh, what does that mean, if anything, for California? Will we benefit by having, if we have Nancy Pelosi as a speaker, will that be good for us? Does it does it mean anything significant, uh, Brian? I can I start with you? Sure. I mean, if if Nancy Pelosi weren't going to be the speaker. Um, we would still probably have a, a speaker from California and Kevin McCarthy. <laughs> so either way, oh, I, I would argue that yeah. we probably would have had a, 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 a Democratic, or a, rather a Californian, a speaker. Um, I think it's a, a I think it's a good thing generally. Um, I mean, I, my biggest fear going into election night was that this wave was not going to materialize, and I'm still not entirely sure it did materialize. It was an incredibly high turnout, uh, energetic election, but energetic on both sides. Um, but you know, my, my biggest fear was that this would even further embolden the president, and even more. And we've I've already just been astonished at how many Republicans have just buried their heads and said, you know, well, we may not like this guy or how he acts, but um, you know, we're going to go with him, and we're scared to death of our base, so we're not going to hold him accountable. I think with um, 
whether it's Speaker Pelosi or another Democrat, I assume it's going to be her, um, but there will at least be some oversight and I think can at least put the brakes on some of the madness to a certain extent. Um, and, and that's what gives me at least some hope to just slow things down a little bit over the next two years and also to get some things done, like maybe pass, you know, some infrastructure bills or you know something to strengthen and protect Obamacare, like the things that we actually talk about issues um, and then force the Senate Republicans to do nothing about it uh, or the president to 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 veto um, if something does get through the Senate. So I think it's it's good. It's a better outcome than it could have been for us. Tip. Well, I think, you know, taking off my partisan hat, I think in terms of California, and, and Brian, you know, mentioned it, is that you've got, a, you know, potentially a speaker who's from California and a minority leader who's going to be from California. That's good for California um, and gives us tremendous clout uh, if, if those two things come to fruition. Uh, so I think we all should kind of, as Californians, be rooting for that. Um, the in in terms of uh, you know the other i think it is going to watching the way that the house interacts with the you know uh, with the president the executive branch and also then with the senate is going to be fascinating over the next you know 2 years and going into a uh, presidential election cycle that now is going to start i mean how <laughs> next week, right? Eric Swalwell announced today, I think he's running for, for president already. So, yeah. I, yeah. And, and remind us again, Eric Swalwell. Eric Swalwell, a congressman from, uh, 37-year-old congressman from the, uh, the uh, Bay Area, East Bay. Pleasant. Yeah, unseated. Yeah. Um, okay. Pete Stark. Yeah, Pete Stark. So, you know, there's... Right. Uh, so I think the, the, uh, and the way that the... I mean, this could go so many different ways. The way that the executive branch uh, and the president, you know, interacts and engages with, you know, uh, let's say Speaker Pelosi, uh, and the way you know she then engages back, um, bec there will be political gamesmanship that will, uh, you know, all of us will be dissecting, and you will see on every single Sunday show from now, you know, through the election. And uh, I think it's just it's absolutely going to be fascinating to watch. And, and one other comment, just, you know, we had uh, Devin Nunes, California congressman from the Central Valley, who chaired the uh, oversight committee looking into... Oversight, uh, in quotes, but yes. Sorry. The Russian investigation, and s some people feeling he did not do a sufficient job in that regard. And now Adam Schiff, who is also a California congressman, will be now chairing that committee. You have Maxine Waters, who was a target of the Republicans, um, who is now going to be chairing the House Finance Committee. So there are, in addition to Nancy Pelosi, there are several other California members of Congress who are really going to be rising to uh, high levels of visibility. And I would include in that Kamala Harris, who um, you know is very outspoken and uh, aggressive in in D.C. You saw her contrasted quite a bit with Senator Feinstein on the uh, rules, the, the Judiciary Committee, looking at uh, the Kavanaugh uh, uh, confirmation. And so um, I think we have quite a few people we've sent to, we, are, we continue to send, I'm sorry, there's like, uh, from, from California to DC that are gonna really be having, a, making a big mark on the next uh, Congress. And I would just like to add, I mean, I just to my comments, I don't think, at least my prediction is, it's not always going to be adversarial between the House and between Speaker Pelosi and the President. And I think it is to 
you know, in their own interest not to always be adversarial. So I wouldn't be surprised if there are some compromises or places where they work together. Um, I wouldn't be at all surprised. I think it'll be few and far between, but I think there will be, they will potentially carve out some items where, you know, they, they, they both can get wins and that, that, that's going to be interesting to watch. So I, I wanted to move on to uh, state and local races, and I also invite people with questions to come up and ask yours while I start asking mine. Um, uh, state, uh, any questions about uh, state initiatives or state uh, offices or local races? So uh, please come up and ask questions. Um, but while you are think coming up with one, oh, we already have one at the mic. Good. All right, let's hear it. Well, one, one thing that characterized this election was uh, the ballot descriptions for the state initiatives um, were maybe worse than we've ever seen before. I'll just cut to the chase with that. And I wanted a, a comment on that. I'll, just to give an example, it's hard to talk in the abstract, but like Prop 7 starts out, conforms daylight savings time to federal law, which we've been conforming with for a century now. And if it passed, which it did, looks like, we will also conform with federal law. So it, a, a description for the ballot that says it conforms to federal law might have worked well in focus groups to help it pass, but does that really tell you what this thing does? And I, there were so many examples that I just wanted to give one, and you know, there are 10 other examples where I think we could do a little bit better, and I wanted to hear the panelists comment on that, because I think it may have affected the result in, in several of those races may have been affected by some, some rather strange and maybe ideologically spinning uh, ballot descriptions. Yes, how can we make them easier to understand, starting with the title? Is there well, a way, Kim? you could always go and listen to the Proposition Song music video produced by the California Voter Foundation, which covers all 11 propositions in just five minutes, impartial and nonpartisan, in the uh, spirit of Schoolhouse Rock. Um, we produced our seventh Proposition Song music video this year. I will confess to you that I actually um, goofed on one of the propositions on Prop... Uh, 11, we got the yes and no vote uh, mixed up. Oh, about on the farm the animals. No, on the ambulance. Oh, the, the ambulance. ambulance. Pardon. Yeah, and we had to re-record the audio, edit the video text that's scrolling across the bottom, and re-release it. And we had to do that because we have to be accurate. Um, so, I mean, but I kind of felt like, well, it shows something that if, like, even the president of the California Voter Foundation, who... To my defense, I mean, we published the lyrics a full week in advance. We had them fact-checked by lots of people. Nobody noticed that we made this error until we actually released the video. Um, it is really confusing to vote on the propositions. I, I would like to see an impartial uh, review of the initiatives. I'd like to do, do what they do in Oregon. They have a Citizens Review Commission. We could bring that here to California. I know Pepperdine and Pete Peterson we're developing a program like that for California. Um, How would that work? Process, How do they do it in Oregon? They, they get a group of citizens together and they review the information about the initiatives and they help provide nonpartisan information to the voters about what a yes and no vote means. And you know the idea is that voters can trust fellow citizens more than anybody else. Um, I think we do need to give voters more tools. Um, the initiative process is sacred in California, and as much as people bitch and complain about it, it you know, voters love it and they cherish it, and it's not going to go away. So we have to make it work as effectively as we can. 
my organization has done a lot to make sure that you can follow the money and access who the top 10 donors are. We think that's a great shortcut. You can get it from the FPPC website, get it from the Secretary of State. Um, there's a lot of great tools out there to help you, but you're right. The actual ballot title and summary is really the ultimate uh, piece of information. And in my view, it should be written by the ledge analyst and not the attorney general. Yes, wasn't there like that that three states initiative? Didn't that get kick, kicked off the ballot because of the way it was worded or some dispute about it, the, it, the language? The uh, Tim Draper initiative to break California into multiple states was um, kicked off the ballot. That was Prop Nine. Um, uh, the Supreme, the California Supreme Court ruled it was invalid because um, it was it would require a constitutional convention to do what that initiative was trying to do. So it was an overreach. I just want to mention, uh, uh, oh, sorry. I want to mention that the, the pizza place upstairs, apparently they work nights. Uh, so that's what's happening up there. They don't come until after five o'clock. So pardon that. Um, speaking about ballot initiatives and state races, I wanted to ask all three of you what you found notable um, about the, the races and the results of, of the votes for any uh, the statewide ballot initiatives or the state races is there uh, something that you know, if you were still too close to call like we mentioned uh, Marshall Tuck and Tony Thurman for state superintendent but just from what you see any you know anything interesting or surprising about how the vote went or too close to call Brian do you have any ones that you're looking at um, I was a little surprised about some of the congressional races I know that's not what you were asking but um, you know there was this uh, hope I guess on my side that the wave would uh, help flip a lot of those six or seven of those districts that uh, um, were held by Republicans that uh, also went for Hillary Clinton in 16 and I think we got three of them potentially we might get to four maybe five I never personally thought we would get all of them but I, it was interesting that uh, you know the, the, the Republican uh, turnout was so strong um, with respect to the ballot initiatives I, I wasn't that surprised by many I think most of them went as I assumed they were going to go. I also had the benefit of having seen polling, so there weren't a lot of surprises. I was a little surprised that the water bond uh, went down. Um, I, and I have some theories as to why that was. I mean, we did just pass a water bond in 2004. We had, a, I believe, a, a parks bond or something on the June ballot this year. So uh, water bond, yeah, it was a water bond on the June ballot. So there might have just been a water bond fatigue and people think, and we're also, well, I would argue we're still very much in a drought. We're not in the the drought like we were in 2014 where you know we had to to not shower for, for you know every week um so anyway that that surprised me a little bit Tim. yeah i think my biggest well i wouldn't say there it's hard to say surprises i mean you know i agree with everything brian said on in terms of the congressional candidates um and it was it was during the campaign we uh we went into some of those congressional seats and it was interesting just to get on the ground and like, you know, you get to, you get a real flavor for any campaign when you actually get on the ground and kind of see what the mood of people are, what the, you know, what the volunteers and the activists and, you know, just kind of what's going on in the communities. You really get a, a better sense of things. Um, but I think the biggest thing for me was um, kind of the, the purpleness of California on some issues, you know, rent control, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, that went, you know, down pretty hard. 
Um, I think that this, you know, whether or not you see it, which will be an interesting trend and how the political parties deal with that is, um, you know, this being able to run as strong as an independent like Marshall Tuck and Steve Poisner and those guys. And we'll see what happens with those outcomes, um, you know, because you could start to see it on both sides in certain areas and and just how the political parties and the, and the different kind of machinery that goes along with the parties you know, deals with that, um, you know, uh, that, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the viability of, of independence in certain places uh, as a tactic uh, in, you know, whether it's for state assembly or state senate or Congress or for statewide office or whatever. Uh, I think that's uh, going to be something that both sides are looking at moving forward. So those are kind of the things that in terms of this election, um, that that I saw, I think, uh, you know, another surprise was, um, you know, maybe just some of the, uh, I think the the, the turnout um, and the amount of money spent in Orange County, uh, but also in a, a lot of other places, but particularly there's some areas of Orange County where just the, you know, from independent expenditures and, and that type of thing, and from, you know, both sides of the, the congressional committees, et cetera, and how that impacted, you know, down ballot races and everything was, uh, you know, we're still seeing you know, kind of the, the uh, results of that, and we'll, we'll wait to see what, what eventually happens. But those were kind of the things that, I, that uh, I'm most uh, intrigued by. Or who would have thought that the most expensive ballot measure in the history of the world was having to do with dialysis in California? Right. <laughs> how, how much money was spent, more or less? You might know. know. It was I think it was $112 million at the last count. Jay knows. Um, yeah, 110 for, You know, for... for my take on the initiative process is um, you can't win an initiative without money. You can't win with only money either. Um, it, you, if you have enough money, you can defeat an initiative, and we've seen that happen time and again. But at the end of the day, it seems like California voters over and over and over again continue to display their savviness, and they – they, as much as I worry about whether they really understand what they're voting on, I think a lot of people skip initiatives if they don't know how to vote or they vote no if they don't know how to vote. Um, it's, it is hard to pass an initiative in California. And I feel like, you know, on Prop 3, the, the water bond, you know, t traditionally California voters pass bonds. I mean, that's we often do. And yet this time it was like, no, we spent enough on water. And I really feel like people are paying attention. You have to remember the people who vote in this state are not the same as the people who live in this state. It's it, the people who vote are um, a, a subsegment of the population, and hopefully, it's getting to be more and more representative of the population as a whole. But um, I think people who vote take it very seriously. I think the one initiative that I was really surprised about was Prop 7. I thought people weren't going to understand the Daylight Savings Time initiative. And uh, they did understand it. And they voted in favor of revisiting our Daylight Savings Schedule. So you know, now, of course, the, the, the trouble is people may think it, it's going to change right away. And it doesn't change right away. It only opens up the door for change. So it's got to be up to the legislature to carry a bill that would actually change daylight savings and then for Congress to approve that. So hopefully voters won't feel like they got short shifted through voting for Prop It's 7. still dark outside and we just it passed is. it. So Yes, and it will be light in the morning. 
I'm waiting to see if big dialysis becomes part of the political lexicon along with big oil and, you know, big labor. And, and the you know, Indian tribes. Right, and, and big, big gaming, you know. All right, next question at the mic. Uh, just now, uh, Kim Alexander had mentioned about voter participation. And so my question to you and uh, also to Tim and Brian, what does it take? to get more voters engaged. Uh, you talked about voter turnout a little bit earlier, but that's actually, uh, I They're think laughing that, and shaking their yeah, heads. Yeah, well, well, like what what will attract more voters to participate? Not just registered voters, but eligible voters that are out there. Kim. That is a great question. And um, I like to remind people that people don't like to do things that they feel they're not good at. And I fear that a lot of people feel they're not good at voting. They might have a strong opinion. Of, I see people nodding their heads in the audience. They might have a strong opinion about one thing or another on the ballot, but our ballots are long and complicated and nowhere does it say it's okay to skip contests. And we don't have a choice on the ballot saying skip this contest, which I think we should, especially for the Republicans that are voting in the top two primary system where they've got two, Repub two Democratic candidates for, for US Senate. They don't wanna vote for either. And what's their choice? They can't even write in a candidate. So, you know, we have to make the, the ballot more voter friendly. And we can do that by giving people permission to skip contests, clearly. Um, and by we really need to engage more in voter education and especially with young people. I mean, I can't tell you, I had so many people calling our office on election day in distress several people were like is this a real person are you a live human being like they'd been calling numbers and getting answering machines and you know getting into voicemail hell and all this kind of stuff and i, was, I had to keep assuring people yes i am a real person yes i will help you you know and people were near tears these were young people voting for the first time and they were they you know they had bought into the idea that they wanted to participate, they wanted to make their voice heard, but they were actually confronting their ballot and actually trying to find a voting location, trying to find their polling place, you know, and having a hard time of it. So I think we need to, what I always advocate for is in addition to um, making it clear it's okay to not have to vote on everything on the ballot, um, we need more uniformity in the voting process in California. Every county is doing things slightly differently, and this makes it really complicated for voters and makes it hard for people to help each other, which I think is important. You know, people turn to their family and friends and coworkers when it comes to voting, and if they're voting in different counties, they're having different voting experiences, and they have different voting options and opportunities, and I think we, meet, we meet, need more uniformity, and that's what I'm hoping Governor to be Gavin Newsom is going to support providing more funding to counties to provide more standardization in the voting experience. So for our podcast, we only have six minutes left. Uh, so just want to be mindful of time. If you have any burning questions, now is the time to come up to the mic. All right, so we have one question coming up. Yes. Okay. Oh, sorry. Thank you. Um, so in response to what you had to say about voter education, I've worked in both the K-12 systems and I'm currently working in the post-secondary education system and we do everything that we possibly can surrounding voter education. So I'm just wondering what sort of solutions can you offer us to this issue that we appear to be having still? Thank you. 
I think it's a social situation. You know, people vote if their friends and family vote. And we, a lot of people sort of organically are hosting ballot parties. And I think that's something that we need to encourage for people to get together with friends, families, neighbors, a couple weeks before the election, go through their ballot guide, go through their voting materials, and get online and look at the information online because there's great, great resources online. And work with people who they know and trust to help them come to inform confident choices. You know, you don't have to go to a ballot party with everybody you agree with. In fact, it's even better if you have a ballot party with people you disagree with because it would be like, I always vote opposite of you, so I'm going to, you know, this. I'm going to do that this time. That's okay. Um, but that's the kind of thing that I think we need to encourage is more informal gatherings of voters. And maybe the campaigns have seen some of that in their outreach with voters as well. Tim. From, from my perspective and having, you know, just kind of thinking about it as a, as a you know, political consultant or operative, um, I think the answer is simple. The solution is not. And, and the fact is people vote in their self-interest, right? And, you know, all of us and, and, may, and many of you have, have, you know, volunteered on campaigns where you've actually gone and knocked on somebody's door and you've talked to them about a candidate or an issue or that type of thing. And there are so many people out there still who don't feel that their vote matters or there's nothing on the ballot that, you know, interests them. You know, dialysis was not driving turnout, right? It was an important issue to a segment and et cetera, but it's not driving turnout. You know, it's not something that is relevant to vast majorities of Californians. And I think so the solution is very hard, you know, in, in, in what does that mean and how do we, and we deal with that all the time in campaigns, right? How do we activate our base, get the people who are going to vote for our guy uh, or, or, or woman uh, to turn out to vote? And that is, you know, the million dollar question. And, and we spend countless hours on, and, 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 re, and money polling and surveying and trying to figure those questions out uh, and trying to figure out what is it that matters to individuals and then also how if they are feeling that their vote actually makes a difference actually matters and I think that goes that that crosses party lines it crosses ideologies it crosses every demographic group and that's you know that's that's the answer the solution in a state like California that is so massive, you know, uh, is is a tough, tough solution. We haven't got it yet. Well, I'll let you uh, speak, Brian, but I'll, I'll say we started these policy and appliance, really the election-specific ones, the past couple of months looking at ballot initiatives and um, beer and wine. Uh, and they started small, but I, I would say from a personal perspective, it was really interesting to get both sides of the, on a on a panel and uh, have them talk straight talk like what you're doing now and people who went said they got a lot out of it. I don't think they lied. So for 2020, we're going to aim to do the, those uh, better because it seems like having I personally enjoy them. So I think uh, that's one option. But Brian, did you want to add something to that? Because your face just looks so torn and uh, like about this topic. Uh, this, well, this is like the existential question. And we, we, you know, I work with some of the smartest political minds in the world, and inevitably we have the same problem election after election. 
I managed a campaign to legalize marijuana in the state of California and like in a presidential year. This wasn't like some obscure dialysis measure. Like it was pretty clear cut what that campaign was about. And we, up until the election, were having a hugely difficult time getting our base motivated. And not to mention the fact that we were at the bottom of the ballot, which was a very long ballot. We were Prop 64, and there were like 13 or 14 ahead of us. So we had to like put ads targeted to millennials on Facebook, like pointing an arrow to where that box was on their ballot. And we ended up you know, doing fairly well, but especially with young voters, it is just incredibly difficult. And I, I do understand why, because people think their vote doesn't count. And at the same time, and I'm not trying to be like a Trump, you know, a basher here, but we have seen this such drastic decay in trust of institutions and just like this, nothing matters. This is all fake and everything is crooked and that doesn't help. Now, I feel like we have done so many things to make it easier for people to vote. There are many more things we can do. And at the same time, we have people who benefit from suppressing votes. So they're sort of uh, the counterbalance to that. Um, but it, like ultimately, it's like there's only so much you can do. You can lead a horse to water, right? But it's ultimately, it is up to people to actually make that decision to vote. And it's hard. Do you think with the, the number of too close to call uh, races, not just in California, but in the in the U.S., just some, you know, by a few thousand votes, does that get the message across to some people like, wow, maybe every vote does count because it comes to too close to call? Could that be a no. marketing? No. I mean, it should. But, you know, I remember, you know, the 2000 election. Um, you know, the, the people, my friends who cast the protest vote for Nader, right? Or, I mean, we've seen this so many times. I mean, every single election, there's a, well, if, you know, you hadn't voted for Jill Stein, maybe you wouldn't have ended up with Donald Trump. But people don't seem to, to you know, they, they don't obsess about politics like we do and don't maybe necessarily remember who they even voted for. Um, so it should, and I would like to think that people actually do realize that, like, every vote actually does count and the races that get people the least excited they're raced for state assembly or state senate whatever those are the ones where like you know a handful of votes frequently are the margin of of victory or defeat and like that's where they count the most but people don't care at all and it's it's a challenge and i wish that weren't the case but it's a reality that we have to deal with yeah there's a vote in or a, a, a district in riverside i think that on election night it was three votes for state assembly yeah, I and mean, that it, really goes back to right. the fact that like all politics is local and where you can have the most impact is at the local level. And that's where the vote margin can really make the difference. So I think that's got to be a takeaway for people who are feeling energized by this election is the next step is to get involved in your local city council or school board or get involved in an initiative campaign in your area. And then maybe that will help you gain some confidence in the idea that every vote does count. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious about what people think about the, the fact that, uh, that I can't remember the number, the senior housing and, and taxes and sort of like Prop 13 thing, you know what I mean? What does that mean that it went down? Does this mean that we're going to look at 13 again or we're going to... Oh, you mean Proposition 10 about the uh, Prop 5? Prop five, yes. That's that. My question is, what what do you think that defeat means as far as? Yes, and isn't there something uh, 
brewing on the 2020 ballot about like the split role. We did cover Prop 5 and we did talk about this split role initiative, but is Prop 13 going to be a topic of discussion for 2020? Yeah, Brian. I mean, it's my understanding that there uh, isn't going to be an effort to put a, a split role uh, initiative on the uh, 2020 ballot. Uh, don't ask me to explain it. Uh, maybe Kim can better. But um, yeah, Prop 5, you know, that was a, uh, I mean, this is a, an issue that comes up seemingly every election cycle. It's often, you know, people will qualify an initiative to try to force the legislature to take action. Uh, I think in this instance, Prop 5 was essentially qualified, but orphaned by its sponsors and in, in that they didn't uh, actually actively pass or try to fund a campaign to pass it. Um, but once it was qualified, it was on the ballot. So I, I, I wouldn't read too much into its defeat. But I do think, as of now, uh, there is a lot of talk about uh, 2020 being uh, a you know, potentially huge fight on this uh, split role issue. Yeah, I, I think um, it's really important when an, when an initiative passes, you got to read a lot into it. If it's defeated, you should not read a lot into it because often people vote no when they're confused. And Prop 5 was really confusing. Um, but I, I do, you know, the conventional wisdom is that the people who vote in California are older, whiter, and richer, and more likely to be homeowners than the people who don't vote in California. And the fact that Prop 5 was not passed when it was something that appeared to favor that particular demographic group is a sign that um, that there may be a little crack in that door to revisiting Prop 13. Okay, thank you. Um, so two more questions from me. Uh, when you're talking about all politics are local, I did have a question about local initiatives around the state that looked really interesting, particularly here in Northern California. Uh, San Francisco had Measure C, I guess the homeless tax, which passed. Uh, I thought it was interesting South Lake Tahoe in Placer County, I believe, uh, had Measure T to ban short, uh, sorry, El Dorado, thank you to ban short-term vacation rentals. And last I read, it was like too close to call. It was kind of leading to, but, um, and then what was the other one? A lot of cities and counties that had, um, were voting on marijuana taxes. So I'm wondering if there's like the trickle-up effect where some of these uh, local uh, initiatives that some people are voting on kind of, you know, are a sign for what we'll all be voting on. So did you look at any of these local initiatives, uh, you know, this homeless tax, uh, marijuana, um, business related, whatever, and think this is something that's going to, you know, bubble up to a wider um, uh, group to vote on in 2020? Or no? Well, I'll, I'll start with Brian. the marijuana tax. And Tim, I'm interested in his perspective, too, since we were on opposite sides of, of that campaign. Um, you know, we, we knew that um, if we were successful in passing Prop 64, that a lot of local governments would see revenues coming in and decide that they wanted to get in on that too. And we wanted to take that into account because if you tax legal marijuana so high, eventually people just go to the black market. So we were very careful in how we wrote that initiative to try to allow for some flexibility over the, the long term as the market uh, kind of came into uh, uh, full effect. Um, but I, I do expect we will see more and more ordinances, not just related to taxation, but regulation. Uh, you know, a lot of municipalities have banned uh, retail sales. Others, you know, will be banning delivery or allowing delivery. So I think there's going to be a lot of local action on that front uh, throughout the state. And same on homelessness. I mean, this is an issue that 
um, you know, we see right outside the doors here and all over the state and, um, you know, different and, and it's sort of like soda taxes. Other cities and counties look and see what their counterparts are doing and look for new ways to bring in revenues. And so I imagine we'll be seeing more of that type of effort as well. Tim. Yeah, I think uh, with local initiatives, I mean, sometimes it's the trickle up effect. Sometimes it's a trickle down effect. Um, I think, in, you know, with, in terms of, of marijuana, it was the trickle down effect because, you, you know, you pass statewide initiative. Now you have, you know, the you know, locals that, that want to you know, figure out, OK, what do they do here? Um, and there's a lot of flexibility for them to to uh, to act. Um, I think I, I did a, a, a local ballot measure. Um, it's hard to remember the like two years ago, two years ago in San Luis Obispo uh, to uh, raise a certain uh, local tax in order to uh, pay for road construction and, and, and that type of thing. Uh, and we need to get two thirds and we got 60. What was it? Sixty six point like one. And we didn't. We were so close. Um, in order to pass it, uh, we needed uh, you know uh, uh, two, a real two thirds to get it. But you know that was an indicator that of things to come and what was ne- it was needed to happen um, because you have a number of counties that were facing these challenges you know throughout throughout the state. Um, so it, it, I think that. Um, the the initiative process like you know like kim mentioned you know here in california uh, people at the local level really that's one thing that they get motivated about you see a lot of passions uh, because people it's it directly impacts a lot of people um and and that can be a motivating factor in some in some areas Um, but still you know, it, it affects certain groups, and so it's rare to see something that kind of gets everybody all, you know, uh, you know, whipped up into a frenzy and coming out to vote. But you know, there are those issues at the local level. And and just to add, you know, we are California. We are the fifth largest economy in the world, and I think that our voters are aware of the fact that what we do through our ballots has a national and even global impact. And we have many times. Uh, set loose some major change in public policy through our initiative process. So I think that California voters, as much as they like to complain about how complicated the initiatives are, they do really cherish this right to directly make the laws. And that's why, you know, I often hear people in Sacramento saying, oh, we should get rid of the initiative process. I'm like, that is a waste of time to have that conversation because the voters are never going to get rid of the initiative process. The challenge is to make it work effectively at both the state and local level. And I think we've made some improvements in California through uh, helping voters follow the money, through the Ballot Initiative uh, Transparency Act. Um, You know, we are trying to make it a more effective way for the public to be involved in the lawmaking process. And I do think it is what can bring voters out to the ballot. This ballot was not a very hot ballot in terms of having big draws. If Tim Draper's initiative had been there dividing the state up, it probably would have drawn a few more people out. We didn't have any of those, what I would call water cooler initiatives. If people still worked in offices that had water coolers, that was the idea. They would gather around the water cooler and discuss these initiatives. But um, even even that being said, you know, voters take this 
this role very seriously and it's something that we cherish and not all voters in the rest of the country have this right so you know being california and having this power i think it's something that our voters are trying to exercise responsibly and it is fascinating to see how they do occasionally bubble up from the local level onto the state level so we'll see what comes next so yes my, my last question is about uh what comes next and maybe it's the crystal ball question but since we voted in a new governor and we have a new legislative session starting, uh, also a new Congress, Congress session in Congress um, happening in January, all this happening in January. Um, what do you predict for the next two years? You know, we have another election coming up after this one. What can you tell us that you think would happen just based on all these changes on the state level, the federal level? Anyone wanna take a guess what we should keep our eye on? Tim, how about you? Well, I, I mean, one thing not to forget, I mean, we're in 2018, we're coming up on a new census uh, and uh, redistricting in California will be taking uh, place uh, in the not too distant you know, future after, after that, sentence, that what, census. Is there a time frame for when that would? Uh, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's early after the, the census is, is taken, but the census every 10 years. So, you know, we, we're, we're on, the, on the verge of that. If it's right. not kind of legal challenges. So not you know, for 2020, but after that, it yeah. would come and, into play. And so you've got, you know, voters passed Prop 11 uh, back in, was it 2008? Uh, I think it was an initiative I worked on, um, the yes side, to get the Citizens Redistricting Commission. Uh, and so I think, uh, you know, in terms of we've got, you know, some switch in congressional seats. We've got some uh, some movement on the Assembly and Senate seats. Well, you know, now you've got longer terms that all of these uh, individuals in the in the state legislature can serve. Um, you know, certainly there are no term limits on on Congress, but you know, in a few years you've got redistricting. Okay, how does that impact? You know, these seats that now look they're either swing seats, they look pretty safe one one way or the other. Um, you know, do things do think things change there? I think that's that's one thing that that we just need to be I think mindful of as as we as we look forward. Um, but, you know, I think that, uh, you know, again, and uh, I'm going to actually, um, towards the end of the campaign, I think Gavin Newsom tapped into something that I'm going to give him a lot of credit for because it, it is something that speaks to all Californians and that we are positive, we're forward thinking. We do have our problems, but, you know, that energy, Reagan had it. You know, uh, other governors have talked about that. Gavin tapped into that and started talking about that quite a bit. The positivity, the exceptionalism about California. Uh, and I think that's something that um, I think is good for all of us, you know, to, uh, I think, in terms of as we're talking about our politics and, and, and the issues uh, to kind of uh, harness uh, and, and talk about. Because on both sides of the aisle, I think with the heated debate that we're getting at the national level and some of the divisiveness that this is another way that California can lead as well uh, on both sides to to really talk about the our, our you know the, the the exceptionalism in California and we can disagree on issues you know and have different perspectives and I know you know in terms of the the um, our, our you know two candidates they certainly had their policy disagreements um, but I but I think it was always you know focused on a kind of building a better you know future and I think if we can do that that is you know something that um, I would like to look forward to here kind of in in the political discourse in the next couple of years. Brian. I mean, it's, I think it's going to be exciting, hopefully good exciting. Um, the, 
you know, we have a new governor in California, and I'm not going to add too much on what Tim said, but he's obviously got a, a very full to-do list and a lot of energy um, behind that. At the same time, at the national level, I mean, we are literally seeing the very beginning of the presidential campaign, which is crazy considering the November 2020 election is two years off. But that's how these things go. They really begin two years out. And so I think uh, uh, on the Democratic side, we are going to see every week another candidate, some top tier, some middle to lower tier, you know, take their first trips to Iowa and New Hampshire. And that uh, will at least give my side something to to look towards is how do we get through the next two years of this president that we have right now. And so, I mean, and that just that's the sort of um, political story that keeps people engaged and interested. Um, you know, I would say that one of the upsides of the last two years with Trump in office is that has brought a lot of people who weren't apolitical into the fold. Um on, I guess, both sides. Uh, but on the Democratic side, I mean, I have a lot of just friends, people I grew up with who haven't ever really been involved in the political process, who have been motivated. And I think that um, uh, looking ahead to 2020, even though it's a very long time off and who knows what the world will look like then, is something that will help keep people engaged. Because it's, you know, as, as much as we realize that the local stuff is really what matters in our daily lives and that we can actually impact that isn't what necessarily drives that water cooler conversation it's the what's happening at the national level um so i think there's actually a lot to be excited about and to look forward to kim last word well, I'm looking forward to California having our presidential primary in March in 2020, which was a bill that California Voter Foundation supported uh, in the legislature that Governor Brown signed into law. So instead of having our primary in June, we're going to have our primary in March, and we'll have more of a say in deciding who the nominees are. So I'm looking forward to that. I'm also um, keeping an eye on the Interstate Compact, uh, which is this uh, movement uh, sponsored by the National Popular Vote organization. Um, there's already a number of states that have signed on to this, and this is a compact that says that the state will award its uh, electoral college votes to the candidate who wins the national popular vote, even if it's not the same candidate who won that state's vote. Um, if 270 plus states electoral college votes pledge to support that, then the next president who's elected will be the president who wins the popular vote and not the president who wins the electoral college vote. So it's a way to work around the gerrymandering of the electoral college. Um, and California has already passed this compact. It'll be interesting to see if other states uh, pass this compact, particularly populous states like California, who are really shortchanged in the electoral college mathematics. So I'm going to be looking a little bit more closely into that and um, seeing if uh, other states might get on board with that so that uh, unlike the last two out of three open seat presidential elections where the candidate who won the popular vote did not win the electoral college vote, we can flip that around and actually get a president who's elected who does represent the majority wishes of the people of the country. It's going to be really interesting two years uh, to see what happens both here and in, in Washington, D.C. So thank you very much for coming and telling us what happened and what you think is going to happen next. And thank you, audience, for coming and asking great questions. And, uh, yeah, we'll just keep an eye out uh, 
on California politics. It's never boring. So thank you very much. I appreciate your time, and thank you guys for coming out and have a good night. You've been listening to California Groundbreakers. Tonight's Policy in a Pint conversation was held on November 8, 2018 at Roostaller in Sacramento. Many thanks to our panelists, Kim Anderson, Andrew Acosta, and Tim Rosales for joining us. Thanks to J.E. Pano and Zoe Pineda of Roostaller for hosting us. A special thanks to Stephen Maviglio for helping us put together this event. And of course, thanks to you for listening. Find out when our next event is by going to our website, californiagroundbreakers.org.